here you are again. After you consumed your tome on the struggles of Greek heroes or a Victorian story of literary fancy, you're faced with the age-old dilemma of, what do I read next? Well, there's always that to-be-read pile. Boring. Good news, introducing A-Rando, the AI-randomized automated network directory of opiscules, brought to you by Wholesale Discount Remainders Warehouse. A-Rando. A-Rando is the automated bot that offers the reliably, completely random choice for your next book that you could only otherwise get from strangers on Twitter or Reddit. A-Rando can guarantee that your next reading selection will be something you would never have picked on your own, or wanted to. It'll carefully analyze your reading habits and all available options to identify that one amazing book that's the least like whatever you read last, inflicting an intellectual whiplash of only the most pleasurable kind. Been stuck in a rut of reading science fantasy, history, or philosophy? A-Rando will erase every other option from your Kindle until you knock out Being Martha, the inside story of Martha Stewart and her amazing life. Are you a mystery buff? A-Rando will lock down your Amazon account until you finish every volume of Martha Stewart's Pies and Tarts. Use the promo code REREAD, one word, to access A-Rando's bibliography of international titles that give you the opportunity to finally conquer the German language as you push through Martha Stewart's Bluender Garten for den ganze Jahr. And thank you, A-Rando, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hey, James. Hey! Did you know that it's it's usually you that starts when we talk? I've never. I, I, I haven't noticed that. I haven't noticed ah, that. Ah, no. well, anyway, <laughs> surprise. So it's also you who reads all the comments and, and organizes that. But um, yeah, guess what, though? We're switching today. Oh, so no! It's a coup! Yeah. <laughs> but we've both been really busy, so sorry again for having been a while since we put one out. Um but well, no, that's not true. We did put one Patreon episode. Yeah, we out. well, yeah, 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 and we put out yeah. a, an interview with uh, Brian Evans. That is right. That is correct. But yeah, so we've just been work and family and life things have been um, going crazy. Right. So yeah. So, so yes, but we're back a little bit. So yep. I I have like a big stack of reader interviews I have to go yeah. through, and um, and they're really good. They're really yeah. good. You're going. You guys are going to love this. Um, yeah. I don't want to pick a favorite, but I have a favorite. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And we actually have a lot recorded. It's just the process of like going through the it, comments yeah. and then editing it and whatnot. That's that's taken a long time. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Really sorry. But we are back. So, all right. Um, I mean, so we're, we're sorry to our patrons. I mean, the rest of you, I mean, it's <laughs> what do you want for nothing? We, we but... <laughs> will be sorry to you for you. We will be sorry when you sign up. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, the cor- the comments aren't nothing. So we appreciate those. <laughs> so we, sh- we should have gotten to the comments. Yeah. But actually, it was kind of fun. The last one we did for Patreon was on um, 
Garden of Forking Paths by Borges, yeah. which kind of an earlier story. Right. Um, and one thing I said, you know, the vibe takes a while to get kind of Borgesian to me at least. But anyway, that's a fun one, um, especially because it gets into some kind of multiple worlds theory, uh, which we're gonna brush up against here and well, just certainly in but, sort of the Lichter as well, but also, but oh, yeah. I mean, right. I, well, I mean, I, in a way I live in multiple worlds theory with this book. So it's good stuff, but it's another one of those places where it's Are the Equasters like a multiple uh, mini worlds. That's options? a good question. Like, I don't know. I mean, we'd have to look into that. I don't remember when Malrubia sort of explains himself in Citadel. I don't remember that. That I guess he has to be dead, right? But so, yeah, but there's definitely time travel going on. But because he can yeah. travel in time, who cares? Yeah, so. yeah. So I don't know, but um, that's that's a different hazy muck of problems that we'll have to get into even more later. But anyway, yeah. So if you we're still on our Borges kick on Patreon, um, so if you are interested in Borges and thinking about ways that he influenced Wolf or what Wolf might have borrowed from him, that's what we're going on with. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, I guess we better just get right on it. Yep. So first, there were some kind of cool little gems of ideas that aren't about Jonas that I want to talk about first. Okay. First, there was one really, I thought, creative use of a detail that Uncarved Wood on Reddit came up with, uh, which just might maybe get me a little closer to Valeria being a time traveler, um, but also maybe actually nail it down. Um, hmm. So here's here's what he says. Uh, when Severian is with Valeria, a servant brings them tea, quote, not real tea, but the mate of the North, which we sometimes give our clients because it's so cheap. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. then um, Uncardwood says, now Valeria's family certainly seems like impoverished nobility, but giving your guests prison tea is really another step down. So in the podcast, we we talked about a couple reasons about why the prices might have fluctuated Lobster, yeah, yeah lobster. And, he, and he, he actually points out lobster was once what people would eat because they had nothing else. Right. Yeah. And so he said, we know that in the war with the Ashians, the front used to be much closer to Nessus, much farther south. The Autark mentions this explicitly in Citadel. So if this is true, he says, it stands to reason that agricultural products from the north would be unavailable and more expensive at that time. The Mate Severian gets is cheap in his time, but maybe a deluxe tea in the atrium of time, because in its temporal context, the north is under control of the Ashens. Maybe. So what, what do you think? Yeah, it could be. Or it could be that the local tea that Severian gives her clients are, is a... Um, it's the tea of the North. Mm -hmm. So she, yeah. this is, this is her, her, her people. This is her area. Yeah. And I mean, I, I got to agree. Most of the other comments in that thread were like, you know, that's kind of cool, but it would have to be a super, super subtle kind of hint. Well, um, Wolf's known for super, super subtle. Yeah, hints. But even this one is like very specific and I get that. But I mean, as far as just, as far as just trying in some way to nail down what would be some kind of, I mean, for lack of a better term, empirical evidence that Valeria had time travel. I mean, that, that seems kind of creative. I don't know. Yeah. I, I like, I don't know if I believe it, but I, I really like it. <laughs> well, it could be, you know, it could be world. I mean, Severian calls it uh, the tea of the North. So yeah, it could be tea of the autochthons or it yeah. could be uh, tea of the Asians. Yeah. Uh, we do know that the Asians have made it all the way to the, the Citadel, but then why would Valeria be giving Asian tea. Yeah. 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 The, and the subtle, the really subtle part here too is be wolf 
demanding you to remember this one detail and then think mm -hmm. about moving battle lines and all that and how that would change yeah. everything. Well, I totally, I, 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 I totally believe in that, but so he, that he would do that. But I, the, 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 I mean, the trick is that it's it's the T of the North to Severian, right? Yeah. Whereas this is the T of Valerius people yeah. here. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I kind of liked it because it was just one of those things that it, it is something that grounds a speculation in at least something in the text. Yeah, well, I mean, it, no matter how you do go about it, it is a revealing aspect of changing economics. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, the whatever products you had 30 years ago are now not, they are not the premier products you'd pay a lot for now. So the other big kind of nugget of unique ideas that we had uh, also came from Reddit from Neo San Pedro. Last night I dreamt of San Pedro. So in, um, shoot, was it the last episode or the one before? I can't remember. <laughs> but but we, uh, we suggested <laughs> that somebody make some connections between Tyler de Chardin, Pierre Tyler de Chardin, who was a, a French philosopher and theologian um, and also evolutionary scientist, because there were some ideas that might seem kind of close to, to Wolf, possibly. And, um, you know, kudos to Neo San Pedro, because he took it up in full Space. force. I mean, yeah. Yeah, we've got, there's, there's no way we're reading this whole thing, because it really is a long essay um, with, with, that's worked out very well. But Deschardins is a theologian most known for trying to mix Darwinian evolution, as he understood it, with specifically Catholic orthodoxy. Whether or not he succeeded is a, is a constant <laughs> question in, in any discussion of him. But he was actually trained as a paleontologist and then was um, an ordained Jesuit priest. But he, he never actually was like a pastor. He was always um, doing research things mm -hmm. under the Vatican and the church and whatnot. But wrote a lot of really influential books that caught a lot of people's attention because he was trying to, like I said, mix evolution and Christianity and saying that they were absolutely compatible. Mm -hmm. He did that, um, but his his actual writings are really nothing like Darwin. Um, in fact, <laughs> if you do try to read this, and I've only read one of his books, and even then it was it was a very sort of skim read at the same time, but you find yourself pretty quickly caught in what sounds a little bit like a kind of quasi-mystical eschatology with like, mm. well, here's what the point of the world is going to be and how right, right. going with cosmic internal plans and whatnot. But um, the basic idea he had was that all of creation was, in his opinion, moving steadily, even directly evolutionarily uh, toward what he called the omega point. And that's supposed to be where the material world also becomes a spiritual world. And he talks about how there are different aspects of existence, like matter and spirit that are both sort of combining with each other, um, but also in their own ways to create, um, basically to come to the point where everything is in a massive material and, and spiritual unified point. And he called that the Omega point. And Christ was supposed to be another name for the Omega point. Uh, okay. So, so that's the idea. Uh, now, just as a side note, the Catholic Church, um, they really <laughs> liked him at first, which was kind of cool. Like there was all kinds of support and he was teaching all over the place. Then once they got wind of how he actually did mix evolution and theology, they were like, well, this this is not orthodoxy. This is <laughs> quite odd. Um, and so he was, you know, threatened to be excommunicated. In fact, um, the last 
point, I think even like they kind of chilled out now and seen him see it more as an interesting attempt. I mean, I certainly there's no way his stuff is ever going to become the yeah, orthodoxy. But even Pope Benedict said in um, a piece writing somewhere that, you know, he is one of the great sort of intellectual contributions from the church to the world. So um, and he also kind of had some problems like whether or not his idea of evolution is really Darwin's is a huge question. Um, and there's even some mess with like eugenics and and possible uh, possible kind of racist stuff that he does or that we might call eugenics or racist. Anyway, right. the point yeah. is uh, he was super famous. He was also the kind of guy that I think Wolf would have been attracted to just because de Chardin really was um, – an autodidact like he was somebody who definitely took his own approach and just ran with it mm-hmm. um much like our you know beloved hamlet's mill in in a lot of yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah definitely. so yeah. there's some background but what's really cool is neo san pedro um has written out a really fascinating and like i said really long but still really <laughs> fascinating set of possibilities about how wolf might have been using his ideas especially when it comes to what we were just talking about cycles of the universe and about the difference between higher and lower levels of reality, like Briah and Yassad and, and even the idea of, you know, repeating lives and having first and second multiple severians that are, are kind of possibly improving on each other. Really cool suggestion of how this is. So if you are really fascinated in sort of the more metaphysical implications of all of the Briah and Yesud and and the cyclical side of New Sun. This is something definitely to read. I don't know in the end if I'm convinced, but um, but he has some really creative ways to do it. Like even talking about how, I mean, one thing that Chardin talks about is how every part of evolution and Christianity, even if it seems to be going against the grain, is actually Com, uh, contributing to the growth of the whole. So it's the whole point about evolution seeming like it's contrary to a spiritual understanding of the world. But he's like, nope, in fact, it's all doing the same thing. So what's cool <laughs> is, is, is Neo San Pedro even has a, a really cool thing about how the Megatherian side might actually be, whether or not they know it, supporting the the Autarch's plan and and the, the larger sort of Yasadi approach, which we also kind of see is maybe part of theodicy in earth of the new sun too so right yeah anyway there's a lot there um but man i i am really impressed with how thoroughly he tackled this um there's a lot he definitely gets into the weeds a little bit of de chardin's types of thinking but like i said if you've been interested in things like the different levels of the high rows and how yasad actually does differ from Briah and things like that this is maybe one way to start to put some concepts on those but definitely different terms from wolf but i thought it was pretty interesting and impressive i must say neil san pedro picked the right podcast because there's probably very few podcasts in the world who would be able to take this concept and would have somebody (laughs) involved who would be able to understand i went through and i said wow i have no idea I don't know. (laughs) There's, there's a lot there. And I, I think too, it'd be interesting. I mean, we know that Wolf was interested in Lamarck and Lamarckian evolution, which is definitely a different kind of evolution from Darwin. And that that might be an interesting place Mm -hmm. to find it. Cause like I said, even though Chardin says he's talking about Darwinian evolution, everything in his world has a purpose. And that's the point of Lamarck's evolution too, that everything evolves for a purpose that's actually sort of goal driven, which 
Darwin's is much more random. So right. I don't know. It, it seems like there's there's a possibility there. I mean, yeah, it's it's certainly a side angle that Wolf might have been interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Still don't know if he actually read it. That's or not. the trick. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. I, no clue. I mean, I don't. I don't know. Um, right. I think I asked Mark, and he said he didn't know either. So, but um, I'll have to double check my notes. So now the rest of what we're going to talk about: all kinds of comments about Jonas and the antechamber, yeah. which of course is what we're in the middle of, and we're going to keep talking about it after we get done with comments. Let's look at some of these other stuff on Facebook. David Dines. Oh, on Dines. Wondered whether the voice that Severian hears, that it seems to come from underwater, when he's on the guile, is Baldanders leading a group of Abaya's Undyne. Yeah, and this is in Citadel when he asks. Yeah, yeah, well, we haven't gotten there. I don't know. How can we yeah. possibly say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that would, that's a sort of an interesting tidbit to throw out there because it does bring Baldanders back, possibly. In the, right. That's one thing yeah. we can hold on to. Um, just wanted to mention that specifically because. That would be cool if Baldanders really wasn't disappearing until his tiny little scene in Earth. Yeah, yeah. And see, also what else uh, on Facebook? Matt Puzz has um, cool speculation, uh, but he says too that he used to always skip the sponsor ads because he thought they were real. And well, that doesn't say very good news for anyone who's buying space on podcasts for for ads. <laughs> Uh, it looks like he got to uh, episode 15 before he realized that there were actual sponsor ads. And, you know, I, I originally didn't start those ads until chapter seven. So if you are, have been following since the beginning, maybe you are unaware that there are sponsor ads for uh, chapters one through six now. But yeah, we went back and added just some little ones. So, yeah, yeah. Well, now that you know, uh, be sure and uh, patronize those sponsors so we can uh, roll in our Crisos. So, <laughs> yeah. And he also makes an interesting point about Vodalus and the names that he sees in the ledger in Palamon's office. Let's see. He says, uh, regarding Vodalus's coin and the names in the ledger, Severian sees that he has his breakdown. I think it's interesting that none of the names in the ledger tie the people to Vodalus, which causes Severian much grief. Yet the coin that he thought surely tied him to Vodalus also turned out to be fake. So it's interesting to think how many of these names could have actually been Vodalari without having any evidence of it. Although that begs the question why they were brought in to the tower. And on Severian's mother, he adds, I also think there's merit to Catherine being Severian's mother, mainly because she acts as the Virgin Mary figure in that she is worshipped and also the mother of the Savior. Although no one really knows, allegedly, that Severian is the Savior at this point. Also interesting, the, quote, rosary of Blessed Virgin Mary is symbolized by a garland of roses in heaven. Yeah, that last point I thought was cool because I didn't know that. Don't know much about Catholic iconography. I did not know that either. Yeah. But yeah, the Garland of Roses, that's that's a nice connection as well. Really good. Yeah. Okay. So finally, we can get on to Jonas in the antechamber now. Um, everything else is, is <laughs> about what we've been talking about and what we're going to keep talking about. So first, we had a lot of input on the the big green face. And again, trying to think about what that was. So um, mm -hmm. on Reddit, still Neo San Pedro, again, suggests that it might actually be the green man checking in to see if Severian needs saving. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm actually kind of really like this. Yeah, one. so he quotes a little bit from Into the Citadel, where uh, Green Man helps rescue Severian. He says, "We requite our benefactors. I've been running up and down the corridors of time, seeking for a moment in which you were also imprisoned, that I might free you." Um, and San Pedro says, "But the Green Man does not consider his debt paid, and he says." You and I are not yet at a balance, for although I found you captive here, the woman found you also and would have freed you without any help, so I shall see you again. But <laughs> he doesn't encounter Severian anywhere else in the rest of the Book of the New Sun. And Neo San Pedro says, Wolf is again inviting the reader to reread this book carefully and search for the green man's intervention to free Severian. I think that's absolutely true. I think there must be some place where Severian is being freed. That I agree with. Yeah. I think the Green Man has to be in there. Whether or not this is it, I don't know. Because if it is, he doesn't do it. I mean, now maybe he's he's just there looking. Right. He's just checking. Oh, no, they're going to they're gonna get out on their own. So. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a fair, I think it's a definitely a fair possibility. I, I am convinced by that. I think he's yeah. right. I think... I think we should be looking for the green man in this book someplace, and we should pay attention whenever Severian is captured or seems to be captured. Yeah, yeah. So San Pedro uh, says he tries to figure out where they could be. Um, it's he says it's not the Ziggurat where he's imprisoned for a year by Vodalus, and not the Sorcerer's Village where he's freed by the coincidental <laughs> appearance of Hathor's critter, nor the. 11 days that he's in the cell in the Manichen after Severian, you know, helps kill Thecla or helps her kill herself because they were going to, you know, free him anyway. And finally, the antechamber. So uh, Neil San Pedro proposes that the green man had some part to play in Severian's escape. He admits that Severian doesn't really need help. And he admits, you know, it, it's not clear how the green man takes part in his escape. But he takes a wild guess that might have something to do with Hathor. Oh, I, so I think we're going to actually get to this, but not until chapter 18. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe we can bring this up. Because, as you know, Craig, because you can see into the future, I have some speculation about how much Severian, you know, waking up during that scene. Uh, let's see. Neil San Pedro notes that there are three uses of the term green face, and two of them are in the antechamber. And the other is Juturno's face when Severian is drowning. And that's probably not the green man. So, And you had pointed out that Lexicon Earthus says um, that the green man does finally pay his debt at the final chapter of Earth of the New Sun when Severian is imprisoned in Apupunchao's tomb and house. And yeah, so so Severian is the equoster knows that the original... Uh, dead body of Severian is about to be resurrected and that things are going to get bad for the two of them and they might blow up like they did at the end of Claw. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's an opening on the roof but Severian can't get it open and um, he gives up and then he gets out and looks down at the various corridors of time and they kind of open and the green man is there. Um, right, exactly. It says, a quote, all about me stretch the corridors of time, waving meadows roofed with the lowering sky of time and whisperous with the brooks that ripple from the most supernal universe of all to the least. Bright winged, the small Zadkiel fluttered beside one, the green man raced beside another. I chose one that ran as lonely as I and mounted it when he's describing in the corridors of time, he's talking about different universes and how some are 
more supernal than the others. Uh, but that's 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 Chardin. That could be, or at least it's very similar to that idea. Yes, yes, yeah, or yeah, Borges, the Garden of Forking Paths, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so it does make sense that the green man does pay his debt at, at this point, but I think Neil San Pedro's point is a good one, and you know, as a slight alternative to his theory, I, I'll just suggest that the green face might well be the green man showing up in the antechamber to rescue Severian, and looking down the timeline, sees you know Severian will escape through this secret door that, that that's about to get opened, and so he you know he keeps looking, and this is. Probably my favorite, you know, green face explanation. I think of it as a giant green face, and I actually went back to look, and, and I didn't see that. Yeah, I. That's what I was going to ask. In fact, I'm pulling my copy out. Does he use? Does he talk about the size? No, no. It's just a green. Did you see the green face? And I thought it would eat me. And you know, maybe it's just a little green face. Yeah, I was the same way. We keep talking about it as the giant face, so I'm like, oh, right. But, you know, it's fortunate for the green man that Severian is the kind of guy who gets in these sorts of situations a lot. <laughs> you know, in, in, in Arthurian romances, it's a common story device that Guinevere gets abducted a lot. And so Arthur has to go to get her back. And a joke at one point is that Guinevere is just the sort of girl that has people running off with her all the time. And Severian is just the sort of fellow that, you know, loses his way and ends up getting locked up. And, He's not really looking for trouble, but trouble is always kind of looking for him. I'm just looking. Yeah, he says he says monstrous face. He doesn't say giant. Yeah. So um, a different idea, though, David Dines, again, on Facebook, he says, in regards to the green face, I'm of the mind that it's a horrifying phosphorescent mask that the exultant teens who attacked this night where personally, I love that when I was reading the beginning of the, of the attack with Wolf's talk of nebulous green light and murmurings in the dark, my first thought was that it was the man apes running rampant through the room. And I think Wolf wanted us to think of that attack and the irrational fear that it inspired in Severian. And that could be another point that it's more of a sort of mood setting callback to the fear that he had in the dark with the, the glowing of the, the man apes there. Um, and yeah, I mean, giant green faces are scary with Juturna at this point, you know, and like, I don't, I think at this point, We'd be, especially on a first read, you're only remembering her face is huge and, and well, I guess it could still be kind of motherly, I guess, yeah. depending on, on how you, you think of her relationship there, but, but still terrifying. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's definitely a possibility too. Yeah. So after the green face, the next most common thing was lots of people wanted to chime in on Kim Lee Sung and the possible Korean connections, which I thought was pretty cool. So one nice little uh, fact, Lord of Atlantis on Reddit told us was that Korean, Korea's royal throne is also called the Phoenix throne, which I don't think I knew, but that's definitely what the Autarch's throne is called. Um, and, you know, definitely does suggest that Wolf's definitely thinking about Korea. So David Dines, again, really likes the possible connection. Um, and he's got he's got a fair bit um, this, but I think it's kind of good stuff. So we'll we'll go through his. And so, okay, I'll read it. I want to start by saying that I love your guys' long discussion of the various theories of the potential connections between the name Kim Lee Song or Sung and uh, the North Korean national propaganda. As you guys say, there is indeed a lot to chew on there, and I think it strengthens my idea on why Jonas was convinced he was going to lose his reason, or as he says in this chapter, go sane. I think I have some more connections to add to this. He says, in chapter 
10 of Shadow, Thecla quotes a section from the Brown Book about the perfect master, or in other words, who the people, quote the people, would consent to be ruled by. In one case, it's, quote, some power superior to them, and in the other, they would only permit one like them to hold high office. And then later, in chapter 33, we see Malrubius demanding answers from Severian about the seven principles of governance. I, I'll not comment greatly on this particular section here. I will just assume that its conclusion with Malrubius demanding that Severian consider his own form of attachment to the divine entity is a demand to deeply consider what Severian or any citizen really consents to at a personal level or who they'll consent to have society held together by. And in the concluding chapter, Shadow uh, 35, when Jonas is broadly painting the history from the building of, quote, the great fortress by the lords of men on the citadel hill that held the garrisoning hybrids in the wall, he says that, quote, Many held it to be their right to slay the lords without hindrance if they so desired. Uh, pausing here, David says, I pick up from this that the new son is exploring who or what, quote, the people consent to be ruled by. With the last example I cited, I do find the talk of Kim Il-sun tantalizing with ideas. And if I'm reading the suggested history of Earth slash Earth that Wolf is painting here correctly, going out into the stars was a parallel impulse to the inability to commit regicide, at least in the Commonwealth. So, returning to the antechamber, note how Jonas talks about freedom and rule. In chapter 15, he states, actually, the prisoners don't know what freedom is. In the, in the chapter being discussed, you guys cut part one just before Jonas summarizes the way the king was elected in the Middle Ages. What Jonas says is important here, though, in that, quote, none of it began so, and that the people didn't know, ruled by a king not directly elected and confirmed by the people, and then it becoming ingrained is what bothers him here. Ultimately, I think what Jonas can't take is that he would be stuck in a room forever with people who not only don't know what freedom is, but evidently have adapted to living their lives as submissive prisoners. Perhaps this is something that only comes to him from his plundered biological head. Perhaps he has memories of the kind of rule one could have found in a society where people reverently named many of their children after a dictator. Perhaps instead of him feeling vertigo over seeing how long he's been wandering earth following the crash of the fortunate cloud, he's instead feeling great despair at people circling back to an abased form of submission in the place he's been thrown into. Right. Now, I like this as an explanation of the content that he's saying there. I'll, I'll admit, I still don't feel like it's enough to make him lose it. <laughs> just because it's, but, it, but it's a just, but it is, I think, definitely, definitely, definitely the real point of his giving that little history there is that, you know, that the, the, what's so horrible about this situation, I think not just the prisoners, but also by implication, I think all the people of Earth, he's saying that you don't, you guys don't even know, you know, what freedom is anymore. You just don't have any sense of, of how you could be living your lives. You've just kind of given up. Okay. Um, or at least they're just taking this. And that, I think that's, 
an accurate statement of what Jonas is saying about the world. And, but I like that because it's more in a lot of ways thoughtful about sort of how somebody from a different culture would come and see what's going on here, especially somebody who can still remember Greece and, and the myths and all the, the, the real history of, of earth before then. So I like that because it's, it's really cool as how I think Wolf would suggest a modern person should react to what the Commonwealth is like. And I buy it. As far as just whether or not it's enough to actually sort of psychologically damage him, that's where I'm like, uh, I don't know. You know, that's where all the stuff about him that we'll, we'll get to about being half robot, half anything else um, is there. But as far as like, I agree a hundred percent that I think that's what Jonas is saying when he, when he talks about the differences between you know, choosing freedom and just sort of living in it, living in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, Mike for our arms from me. Has some similar ideas that go in a bit of a different way, and he proposed something that recently uh, occurred to me too. Yeah, in fact, Craig, I had you record a segment last time we met to be inserted in this episode as a curiositus earthus. But <laughs> I, I say this is a good point for us to share the curiositus earthus theme. Yes. Curiositas Urthus. So Mike says the name Kim Il-sung means Kim becomes the sun. She says, seems this connection was staring us in the face the whole time. The first empire, according to Syriaca's story, conquered the stars by shedding their emotions. So maybe each starship crew member was identical in features and personality. Maybe all were named Kim Lee Sung, the name being either a deliberate occlusion by Wolf or a transcriber error. In homage to their glorious sun king and navigator, Kim Il Sung of North Korea. Again, in regards to Jonas's mindset in the antechamber, the revelation of Kim Lee Sung's ignoble death there on top of the electrocution, imprisonment, identity confusion, seeing Jolenta again, etc. The death of his first Empire Sun King would be mind-blowing. Okay, so I actually think this is a really cool idea. Um, I, as usual, it's something I don't necessarily buy, <laughs> but I think it's really cool because it does give something really more kind of historically specific to what Jonas is going through. I just like the idea that, yeah, there were a bunch of similar people, possibly even clones or something like that, and they were all somehow connected to or at least like they, they all lived this life trying to idealize their leader or something and that then finding out that the leader had to die in this horrible way, that that's kind of what drives them nuts. I mean, that's, that's really specific and it's really, um, I, I think it's really unlikely <laughs> just because also, um, you know, he seems when he says Kim Lee Sung, he doesn't seem particularly, you know, in fact, he says it's like it's a common name and you got to kind of push the idea that, you know, when he said common, it was sort of an understatement. Well, I, I find this very actually I find this. So, yeah, I find this so compelling. I, I had actually, as I mentioned, approached you with this idea and then we got Mike's. So I was like, oh, wow, maybe it's uh, maybe maybe I'm onto something. Maybe remember in Syriaca's story, we have this entirely conformist community where right. everyone is basically a cog in a wheel. Yeah. What if when Jonas says that 
Kim Lee Sung is a common name, it's because everybody, all the humans are named that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's actually necessarily supposed to be a reference to, you know, Kim Il Sung. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. But maybe, but th- that would that would definitely link this story, Jonas's story, to Syriaca's story. Yeah, and the fact too that that really obviously mixes well with the Ashians as being some kind of again some kind of weird uber communist like I don't know it's beyond communism it's just sort of like yeah. it's hive mindish even almost right. but um but I mean you do have that analog already somewhere else in there. So, but here, I mean, it almost seems like the, the trick would be that this, I think in Jonas's mind would be painting that world as somehow good. And the fact that he's going crazy is because he realizes it's gone. And he yeah, I'm, I'm less satisfied with Mike's idea of why Jonas is, is basically losing it at this point. I, I'm still not sure I can really latch on to a, an explanation for why he's losing it. Yeah. But the the name that actually that actually kind of works. Yeah. But the next part too that he gets into yeah. kind of it looks forward to Long Sun. Um anyway, yeah, we should Yeah, let's look at that. Yeah. Mike goes on. He says, um, the crew scattered after the crash. Why? I don't know. But that's what Jonas tells us. Jonas now part robot, part bio wandered the continents and tinkered with mechanisms himself for years centuries chiliaz at least seven generations uh, yeah i think it was more than seven generations remember he probably doesn't have a flyer so he's moving along on foot or eventually on his merry kip slowly touring the much changed earth he probably has to work but to buy passage aboard ships it takes a while eventually he forgets his nature or maybe there's shades of matera marble here and he degrades over time and he loses his higher robot functions or becomes human or whatever and what does this mean perhaps he forgets his purpose his nature his friends he just becomes an itinerant wanderer yeah, and I, I like it because it gives a really kind of cool explanation to, or a, a really kind of cool backstory to what's going on with Jonas when he's wandering. But it's also that thing about the slow forgetfulness just, mm-hmm. that's just like the Kims have, where, I mean, I don't know, you, even if he hadn't directly worked it out here, maybe that's something he had in the back of his mind. And so he fleshed it out more when you get to the Kims in Long mm-hmm. Sun. Yeah. So I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff there. And, and there's a little bit more, if you want to go read that Mike has um, yeah. sort of fleshing out the idea. And I like the buildup. I think it's super creative. It's definitely, I think, one of my favorite Kim Il-sung theories. Even, like I said, I, I just feel like there's not a lot in the text to to ground it. But Right, yeah, yeah. Still, I mean, well, I don't know. He's, uh, the idea that everybody, all the bios on his ship were named uh, Kim Lee Sung. I like that. That's probably my favorite theory as far as that name is concerned. It just, it feels so right. And it, it does, you know, connect Syriaca's story. I like that. Yeah. And I still, still, the thing that I keep coming back to and we're going to keep talking about later is that I still don't know if that 
is enough for me to buy why Jonas would literally kind of in the moment crack like that. It seems like after yeah. that much time had passed again, it would be, you know, sad for him and even, even very, very tragic, but I don't know that it would be enough. It's not anything that he wouldn't right. know. Right. Yeah. He, yeah. he looks at Severian and he's, and he says, Oh, look, these poor dupes don't even realize th that, space travel is even possible and that he could be talking to a space traveler. He, I mean, he, he talks kind of a little sad picture of, uh, yeah. of Severian when he's talking, he knows about all these details about the, uh, the, the Megatherians. There does there seems like very little he doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. So to that point about immediate things uh, that, that might have caused Jonas to, to flip out. Um, Neil Smith. Neil at the cross does have one more specific reason that I, I don't believe we've considered yet. Um, I honestly can't remember if we talk about it <laughs> in, what's, in, what, in the rest of the episodes. Yeah, I, I have a, speaking of Jonah, people who forgot the, themselves. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember yeah. the conversation we are about to have. Yes. So. <laughs> so, but what Neil says is that it, maybe it was a mix of emotional and electric shock. He says, here's, my reading of what's going on with Jonas in the antechamber at the beginning of the chapter. Consider anyone waking up in a strange place. There is some amount of uncertainty until you remember where you are and how you got there, as Severian has already provided several examples of. Jonas, before this, has some kind of emotional shock, if I can call it that, for him, which we've been puzzling over. Now, he has had a more literal shock from the whips. And I can easily imagine that would cause robot problems like a reset, a reboot, or some other issue. He wakes up in complete darkness, unable to remember getting there, but remembering his past on a ship. If all the lights are out, the power may be out. And I suspect that would be a major catastrophe on a ship. Compare the bit in Earth where the lights on the ship go out, which calls back to this. Jonas's first thought is, well, we need to get the power on before the air goes stale because our biological crew and passengers need air. And he starts shouting orders or calling for help in his native tongue. And then he realizes he feels weight on a ship. That would mean he is not in free fall. Either it's due to acceleration or artificial gravity. Either one would tell him there's still power. He concludes... It's only the lights that have gone out, which isn't as serious. After this, he panics less and gradually comes back to the present. After coming through the two shocks, either because of a reboot or the actions of the claw, he's finding his older memories reassert themselves, which he will refer to as going sane. And then he said, yeah, he says, uh, to discuss the overall state of mind of Jonas and the dichotomy between him knowing that time has passed one moment and being terrified about it the next, I want to bring up timekeeping and recording, or rather the absence of it. We, in reality, seem always to have a clock and a knowledge of the time and the date and to have a calendar. We have written records, the internet, and even in Wolf's time when he was writing this, there was plenty of media. In Severian's world, however, there seems to be no reference to the calendar. Think about how odd that is. The season may be important because of the weather. He'll say winter is starting, but not it was June and winter was starting. No names of months, either familiar nor made up. No names of days, even the hours. It would be near noon 
early evening or whatever. When they talk about a person's age, they estimate and guess rather than say, as we might, exactly how old someone is. Early in the book, Severian states he doesn't remember how old he was when Malrubius died. Some have put this forward as an example of Severian's fallible memory. For myself, I think it's a case that he doesn't truly know his age, no matter how well he would have remembered the number. If someone had told him, you are five years old, because at no point was the age talked about. Ancient Earth is a timeless kind of place where every day is exactly the same. That's kind of interesting, the idea that maybe he really doesn't know how long he's been here and that uh, he's just totally lost track of time because he's wandering and is sort of mindless. I mean, that's interesting. Um, I mm -hmm. think that's kind of kind of cool. Um, it does make sense in a certain way that if he's been wandering quite so much this whole time that, yeah, um, and especially if his mind is messed up because he's a mix of bio and robot, then yeah. May, and maybe then seeing what's happened here, he maybe then he does realize how much time yeah. has passed. Um, so that's the closest, that's, that's a really good part of this that I think maybe does make, have it work that, that he just hadn't realized how much time had passed. The, the trick with that still though, is I still feel like he does know, <laughs> like just the way that he talks to Severian and how he seems to be aware of different things. It's just, uh, I don't know. It's Well, it's, he's it's aware of, of the now. story for how, the uh, curtain wall around Nessus was built. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he yeah. knows even if he doesn't know the exact number of years, he knows. He knows it's been a super. He knows it's been a long time. He seems to. He seems to. He's, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, nothing. It's not like I have an explanation for. Well, this makes sense because blah blah blah. I, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I yeah. don't know. It doesn't make any sense. I anything. I just this isn't. This is a plausible theory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it it doesn't quite satisfy me yet. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. So lots of people were kind of following up with that kind of idea that it was really Jonas's awareness of how much time had passed that maybe caught it. Um, and on Facebook, Danny Fortin, I hope mm -hmm. I'm saying that right, uh, says, uh, he kind of sums that up nicely. He says, I'm a fan of the idea that he's got unfrozen caveman shock. <laughs> the abstracted time passage becomes concrete with the mention of things that hit close to home for him emotionally. And Wolf really got how people relate to the passage of time and cultural evolution. So, yeah, I mean, it does, it does feel like the time has something to do with it. Cause he's, he's kind of thrown by, you know, how long these people have been here and yeah. that it's connected to his story. It does feel like that it has something to do with it. It's just that it does doesn't make any sense to me yeah, that he would no. freak out over that. I don't know. And there's on Reddit, um, XDFO said kind of the same thing. He says, but hasn't Jonas been wandering earth for a long while? Like something like that would be pretty obvious. Plus he seems to understand so much about the autarky and house absolute um, was he even suggest was Kim the first autark. Uh, but then right. what about Typhon? Is he the first empire shooting off colony ships? You know, but I mean, he knows he's very aware of, of, long distances already so yeah i mean and the and the amount of time that severian has changed yeah since as much as the caveman he's you know severian says well you know why didn't we change and he kind of looks at severian pitifully and says um you did yeah. you, you know, just aren't aware of it because you're the one who did the changing yeah. so with all this stuff all these comments about why jonas flipped out 
it's very clear to me now that we've got a situation a lot like Merwenna, where it seems like a lot of people come to this with feeling like, oh, it's got to be this. Like, this is my, mm-hmm. you know, it has to be this kind of intuition. We're starting to get kind of different, different sides again. Uh, right. Yeah. Jonas is definitely just misunderstanding the time um, or people kind of like us being like, no, <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> he has yeah. no excuse to misunderstand the time it's yeah, yeah, yeah but, i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't know he said I, I i we might we might one day figure out the story of kim lee song we might someday figure out who's talking at any one given point but i have found nothing so far to really satisfy me about why he freaks out in the first part of chapter 16 or actually, no, before that, before the whips come, he starts to freak out. No. So we're now going to keep talking about this <laughs> for like another hour, hour and a half. But if you thought that Jonas was suffering for wandering around for millennia, you too can now experience the sense of interminable time that will pass as we keep going. As we can keep keep plugging at ideas. Yeah. I guess that's a little bit of a spoiler since we said we don't know, but I don't know, but at least we're going to go through a little more fine-tooth comb with some, right, right. some of well, the details well, then, of the text. Yeah. How about, how about uh, Scout Sivar? He says, uh, we must consider if Jonas's love for Jalinta is based on shared experiences of being a cyborg, he's just that much more tragic after all. Mm-hmm. He just needed to be introduced to Master Palamon to find an overall much better cyborg partner. (laughs) Oh, that would be an interesting couple. Maybe that'll be my eventual flash fiction contest entry. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Bring it on. I wasn't sure what that was. Oh, he said, yeah, it's because, you know, Palamon is kind of a cyborg. He's got those, he's got a cyborg eye. Oh, it's Master Palamon and his cybernetic eye. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Well, anyway, thanks again for all of the great comments that you guys mm-hmm. pulled through. Hopefully we'll inspire a few more as we go through the rest of this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, it's been a while. We could go for a couple hours <laughs> mulling over this one um, and hope, you know, we're going to go through the rest of this chapter now. So, you know, it might inspire some brand new ideas where we're not done yet. Fantastic. We do also have a few new patrons since last time, so thank you all very much. You keep the cooks and charlatans in business, babe. We do appreciate your patronage. Thank you guys so much for your patience in us not getting to you for maybe a month or so after our little break here, but we really appreciate the support and everything it helps us do. So first of all, a big thank you to our new journeyman sponsors, William Van Heck and Margaret Dostalek. Hope I'm pronouncing them right. If I'm not, please let me know. And then we have three new master level patrons. First, Russell Sullivan. Bye bye, Mrs. Sullivan. Neo San Pedro, who you've heard from before this episode. Last night I dreamt of San Pedro. And Squire Svon. Call me the Squire, yeah. So again, thank you guys so much. Right now, as we said before, we're going through Borges stories on Patreon and a couple other small little projects we're going to try and get back to now that... Our craziness is hopefully settling down just a little bit, but patrons make everything possible, pay for the hosting, pay for our equipment, and just keep us going. So thank you so much, and please, if you're interested, check out patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. 
A continuation of chapter 15, Jonas. We ended up realizing we had a whole lot more to say about this one, and we were going for a long time and got a little tired. <laughs> so we were like, you know what? We should probably split this because because we keep I going. think this is going to be split anyway. So, yeah. 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 So we are going to start halfway through the chapter, basically. Right. So... Jonas talks about being on board his ship. And like I said, I, I'm not sure why this has such a great significance. He says, I used to read aboard ship. Once I read a history. I don't suppose you know anything about it. So many Chiliads have elapsed here. So Severian says he hasn't, right? And this is something that robot Jonas would have been doing, reading about history. Because if it's aboard ship, unless, I mean, the only possibility would be somehow if after Jonas got repaired, he went back to being a sailor, but I'm pretty sure that's not that's, the case. I, no, I think that's, I think that's pretty clear from before he goes into the mirrors that, yeah. yeah, he's been looking for the heroes all this time. So, yeah. Yeah. So he hasn't done any, any shipboard traveling when he did that. Right. Um, assuming again by ship here, he means spaceship. <laughs> But yeah, so he keeps uh, he keeps going on. He says, so different from this, but so much like it too. Queer little customs and usages, some that weren't so little. Strange institutions. I asked the ship and she gave me another book. So here, of course, this is like Star Trek ship. Right, right. Yeah, I think here <laughs> yeah. it's stated flatly yeah. that the ship itself is a kind of AI. Yeah. He, he speaks yeah. of making requests directly to the AI, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, very much like Zadkiel is also the ship, right? Yes. Yeah. So hereditary rulers and hereditary subordinates and all sorts of strange officials, lancers with long white mustaches. For an instant, the ghost of his old humorous smile appeared. The white knight is sliding down the poker. He balances very badly, as the king's notebook told him. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he is, I guess, making a comparison to these Lancers with their long white mustaches to the illustration of the White Knight in uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass, right? That's what this is mm. directly referring to, this line of the White Knight is sliding down the poker. So uh, specifically in chapter one, I suppose that the book was offered to him by the ship. Mm -hmm. And now I think the setting of this chapter is important somehow. I think it says something about Jonas, but I, I don't claim to know exactly what it is. But before we do that, do you have any idea what the hereditary rules and the hereditary subordinates might mean to Jonas in this context? I don't. Well, there's something about being in, he calls it the antechamber. And the antechamber was specifically something in front of a throne room. Right. So he, mm -hmm. he's thinking here about kings, about back in a time when there were kings. Um, you've got hereditary subordinates and we're shortly going to meet Adillo. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so we've also got that sort of hereditary office. And it seems in general what he's talking about is you don't remember what the Middle Ages were. <laughs> it seems like, you know, it's like you don't know about this time where everything was sort of organized by a feudal situation. Whereas now everything is sort of haphazard, right? And yeah, we have the autark, but it's the autark is so unlike a king in any sort of traditional way, it seems like um, that it's, it's just odd. But then he also says too, he mentions that there were queer little customs and usages, the way that 
the people who are descended from the navigator have these little traditions that are so much like something out of ancient history. Um, and I don't know if he's specifically trying to suggest that they are medieval, but he's, I think he's talking about something about the idea that the, the prisoners here are been stuck here for so long that they actually have a much older cultures sort of ticks, basically um, the queer little customs and usages. And, the other thing, too, that strikes me is when he says that he asked the ship for another book, it's not like he was reading. I mean, honestly, he says, I, I was first reading a history book and I asked the ship for another and she gave me Alice through the looking glass. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, is so weird. Right. But it, it also means that for him, it's just it, Alice in Wonderland is like a historical story. It's not, it's not a novel. It's something, it's like a historical artifact is kind of how I, I took it. That's something from that way back time back then, hmm. I feel like is what he's saying there. But also he could be confused and sort of mixing up different things, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I get the sense that something about Jonas isn't thinking perfectly clearly here because he's talking about hereditary Kings and whatnot, and then is switching to some, you know, 19th century story yeah. which is weird um but it's still kind of about the things and then he quotes an odd part of it right so so it's not like it's a sort of linear kind of thought process he's going through here i get the sense that overall what he's doing is saying these people have things that are still connected to 20th century or more recent you know or at least the mm -hmm. next couple hundred years or something where there's significant things rather than wherever earth is at this yeah. point or the commonwealth that's the sense i get and and again it's it's very vague in general and he, there's i don't think any sense that he's saying that like kim lee sung was a 20th century person i think it's just kim lee sung was from some time when the 20th century was still in living memory mm -hmm. and if the ships can really travel all throughout time then they could go that's true back when that's true so um i think that's that's what he's that's the suggestion. Like, hmm. I don't think there's anything more specific than that, unless somebody can read something into the, the white knight reference being more particular. Well, I have, well, not to that, but I, I mean, I, I do think that Jonas recognizes the white knight reference as ironic because mm -hmm. he kind of gets a smile in his face. He's saying something that's not totally in earnest. It's kind of a joke. It's an inside joke for himself. I don't, I, I'm not sure I've caught all of it, but I do think I understand maybe possibly some significance to it in this setting. But I'll, let me get to that in a minute. Um, I think, though, that the answer to Jonas, the full answer, is going to incorporate this. But the point is that after he says all this, there's a big hubbub going on, and you can tell that everyone knows this is important. But Jonas wants to tell Severian something before he follows the crowd. He grabs his shoulder with his left hand, the, the flesh one, and Severian says, it felt weak, as a woman's, which does nothing to repair Severian's reputation as having retrograde attitudes about women. Cut, cut, Severian. But this is the things that Jonas wants to get across. And let me just remind you his earlier statement that I think goes with this one. Hereditary rulers and hereditary subordinates, all sorts of strange officials, lancers with long white mustaches. And then he says, none of it began so. There was a sudden intensity in his quavering voice. Severian, the king was elected 
at Marshfield. Counts were appointed by the kings. That was what they called the Dark Ages. A baron was only a freeman of Lombardy. It became ingrained. It all endured too long. The people didn't know. And this last bit he shouts at Severian as he's walking away. The people didn't know. So it's something about power and the degradation of world politics, where it started as a kind of republic with the government responsible to the governed, and then those in power claimed authority that they didn't have to maybe appoint their children as their successors. And then those children came to claim that that appointment was their right. And why is this an issue for Jonas now? I'm not sure. Uh, Maybe because he's been a spy for the Megatherians, maybe because he's been looking for the High Rose, uh, maybe because of the relationship of the, the current Commonwealth as a, a military dictatorship, but not one that's hereditary. That's interesting. Right. And I, I do think there is a strong sense that something about the Commonwealth is it's a new dark age, right? Like, I think that's pretty obvious from everything we've been talking about, like something about this society has fallen apart. And so it is like that attitude of the, the Middle Ages being the Dark Ages where you, know, you had the promise of the Roman Republic and then right. over time it became this, you know, hereditary monarchy. Thing, yeah, which, right. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's something here saying that all of this is for Jonas connected with some things that he's sort of waking up to and, and really realizing it. And it could be. It's got to be connected to, I think, the Commonwealth overall, him sort of finally realizing what's happening to the culture right here. Also something about the antechamber where people no longer really remember who they are or what they're doing, but they're just kind of going through the motions and they're not really living freely or authentically mm -hmm. anymore. Um, there's that. So I think he's having all those sort of feelings um, and sort of making all these associations between there. Um and so I feel like, yeah, that's the the first big thing. Like, it's not specifically just about politics. It's really more about recognizing that the culture overall has kind of died and doesn't mm -hmm. really even realize who they are anymore or what they do. And he's been kind of caught up in that. Like, there's yeah. this, to me, it's, it's really this big sense of, in some ways, like humanity just having completely forgotten what they're actually capable of. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's even a religious dimension to it where when you no longer have some connection to a sort of ultimate meaning or ultimate truth that you just kind of wander and fade a little mm -hmm. bit. And I think that's, that's sort of what he's saying, just like it seems like kings were initially elected, which is where everyone's paying attention and, and, participating and trying to choose a great ruler. And then it just becomes this hereditary thing where it's just what you do. It's just yeah. a tradition that you just kind of follow. It in, like when he says that it became ingrained, it endured too long. And eventually the people didn't remember or recognize what it was because they, they weren't, didn't know what they'd lost. They weren't alive anymore. And <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, exactly. And, and that's, I think could that's, be, that could be kind of like these people here in the end. Ab absolutely. Right? They yeah. Don't, they, they, they don't even know what freedom is exactly so they don't even recognize that they're prisoners right it's something they might say but they don't even really recognize it they don't recognize the the outside i mean there's very much a kind of i think we mentioned it before but there's very much a plato's allegory of the cave thing going on down here that yeah. these these people are in a cave and they don't even recognize that their life is shadows of other things and that there are other things that are more real that they could be 
participating in, much less a world above ground. They they talk about it. They have habits. They ask people for you know stories or whatnot, but it's it's all kind of fake. They don't like he says. They don't really believe that there's something out there that they could get to. They it's just sort of a habit to talk about. Yeah, it's important to remember. You know, I'm going through it this time really keying in on everything that Jonas says to try to get an understanding of his backstory. But if you're a first reader, the fact that these people are in an antechamber or in a waiting room, that's, it wasn't a prison. It was supposed to be a waiting room and that they've been here for a long, long time. That's a big reveal. So he could simply be informing us more about this situation. I actually wonder too. They never actually try to leave when they bring the the food in. Um, I wonder what would happen if somebody. I mean, they talk about how the guards sort of motion for them to go back in the room, but well, they've got their spears. I mean, yeah, they got the spears, but they don't. No one ever actually, even Severian doesn't actually try to leave. I don't know. <laughs> it's I, like, well, you know I, I get the idea. He didn't think it really made any. It was a right. really fruitful thing right. to do. But even if he got, even if he were to kill the Hastari at the outer wall, there's more out, more out there. There's Praetorians out yeah. on the grounds. Yeah, I know, but it's just. I mean, with that point too about Severian saying it was a game that they. And pretended. he'd have to leave he, at this point. He'd have to leave Jonas behind. Right, right. But I just wonder, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I run to this literally. You think literally, at one but... point they would, there would have been like a big revolution, everyone gathering up to escape. But they're the, yeah. the, the, the thing, they, they lack the ability to revolt anymore yeah. because they don't yeah. feel that they have anything to gain out right. there. But that goes right back to that thing that Severian talked about when he was tied up, right, where we're playing a game that, you know, I'm under their power, which right now we have that sort of literally done here where all these people – so truly believe that this is life that they wouldn't even really try. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's almost like Jonas is reminding them these people's being prisoners is really more their own inability to believe that they're prisoners rather than the force that's getting in there. Right. Um, Yeah. And that's just, that's a theme that comes up over and over. I think that's probably the importance of this theme at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Which is too bad because I wanted it to be something that would reveal something about Jonas's backstory. <laughs> well, it still may. It still may. Yeah. There's other aspects to it. Too. That's true. Well, okay. I want to talk about that literary reference. So it starts with Alice going through the mirror. And in the course of things, she encounters the looking glass chess set. The pieces have been knocked off the board and they're in the fireplace cinders. But they can't hear or see Alice. So when she picks up the king and dusts him off, he's horrified because he can't see Alice. He's being manipulated by an enormous, invisible hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why don't you read this? Okay, so this is from Alice in the Looking Glass. The king immediately fell flat on his back and lay perfectly still. And Alice was a little alarmed at what she had done and went round the room to see if she could find any water to throw over him. However, she could find nothing but a bottle of ink. And when she got back with it, she found he had recovered. And he and the queen were talking together in a frightened whisper, so low that Alice could hardly hear what they said. The king was saying, I assure you, my dear, I turned cold to the very ends of my whiskers. To which the queen replied, you haven't got any whiskers. (laughs) The horror of that moment, the king went on, I shall never, never forget. You will, though, the queen said, if you don't make a memorandum of it. Alice looked on with great interest as the king took an enormous memorandum book out of his pocket and began writing. 
A sudden thought struck her, and she took hold of the end of the pencil, which came some way over his shoulder and began writing for him. The poor king looked puzzled and unhappy and struggled with the pencil for some time without saying anything, but Alice was too strong for him, and at last he panted out, My dear, I really must get a thinner pencil. I can't manage this one bit. It writes all manner of things that I don't intend. What manner of things, said the queen, looking over the book, in which Alice had put, The white knight is sliding down the poker. He balances very badly. That's not a memorandum of your feelings. So, uh, by the way, uh, you know, the Tineal drawing in Alice's story has a white knight actually sliding down the poker. Uh, I assume the chess piece was actually doing this maybe when she, uh, at some point when she wrote this, I don't know, but... uh, Later, when she meets the White Knight, he will be sitting unsteadily on the horse. Mm-hmm. And also, something else. Um, in the Tineal drawing, the king has a long white mustache. And yeah. so it always is surprising to readers that the queen says, you don't have any whiskers. But that actually, it's sideburns. Whiskers, at this point when she's writing it, means sideburns. And mm-hmm. the king doesn't have any sideburns. So here's what I think. Jonas is going to go through Father Aniri's mirrors. He's going to manipulate himself to become the man that Jolinta will accept. So I think this is implying that Jonas is present, perhaps even now in that room, manipulating Jonas to change, to become a man that Jolinta will accept. Interesting. So the question is, does Jonas suddenly detect this manipulation for the first time himself? Is he remembering first Jonas through the power of the claws healing? Uh, I don't know. Is he remembering, you know, first Jonas in the way that Severian is going to recall first Severian? Is this why he's so worked up? Those are definitely interesting possibilities. There's a even sort of larger picture, I think, to go back to that question we had about politics where... Maybe Jonas is, I think, remembering at this point something about what he learned about the larger scope of things being on the ship. Mm. And I've got a whole lot more to say about this because I was telling you I've got a sort of weird theory of my own uh, <laughs> about <wait>. Jonas, <laughs> which which we'll get to, but I, I don't want to push too much now. But what he's talking about here, I mean, think this is sort of the reason why the, the chess story makes so much sense is that chess pieces have a a very specific identity, right? Like when they're in their proper place and they move on the chessboard, they have a certain set of rules and and places that they can go. And that's where they, they make sense. There's actually a sort of famous example by um, philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who talks about how um, games work. And what's amazing about games is that upon the piece, um, it only makes sense and it only is what it is in the context of chess, where if you take a chess piece off the chessboard, it's no longer a pawn. It's, it literally is not the same thing that it was when it's in the, that context, that it, it really only has that kind of meaning inside that context. Mm, yeah. So when you take a chess piece off a chessboard, you've sort of literally thrown it into another world where it doesn't know who it is anymore. And in a lot of ways to remember the white knight at this point, when Alice picks him up, the white knight as a chess piece has no way to know who he is or what he's doing. And he's just totally confused and completely unmoored anymore. And that's how all these people on earth are because they don't have a sense of kind of literally where they fit into the story, where they fit into the larger story that's going on. Everyone Mm -hmm. in, in earth is, 
confused and lost and you know the sun is dying and and again they don't even have that call it religious or metaphysical perspective whereas if jonas was traveling on this ship possibly back and forth between Yesid and Briar, where he could see what the hierogrammets were doing and what the Hyros plan was, maybe, I don't know. But um, but he would have that larger context of what the bigger chessboard actually is. Whereas now he's maybe remembering some things where, like he said, I'm, I'm going sane by remembering the larger context, but that means that everybody else here is mad <laughs> would see me as mad or that i'm or, or would think of me as going insane too as um, the matter said they're all mad here they're all mad here yeah exactly um but i think that's kind of the point here even though even though i know mark says he doesn't think that new sun is a gnostic world that's also kind of a gnostic idea that like this world is a fallen world that basically has the wrong rules mm -hmm. um, or doesn't have the complete rules and then to get out of that to the actual true picture that's sort of the point of Gnosticism, like to find out the true truth that's behind mm -hmm. everything else. Um, the same thing with Plato's allegory of the cave. When you're born in that initial world, everything around you that would give you direction or tell you the meaning of things is false. It's just the shadow of another image behind you. Um, but you need to climb up out of the cave in order to really see what's going on and to recognize how false all those images were. That's why the the chessboard piece, the white knight, is so perfect, I feel like, for Jonas at this point. Because he's, I think, remembering, oh, I kind of know I, everybody here is like that white knight in the wrong spot um, yeah. and pulled off the chessboard. And so nobody really has the right connections. But he's starting to maybe remember what some of the right ways are. And again, later on when he looks at the mirror, one of the last thing he says he says is, I'll come back when I'm sane and whole. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of that promise that right now, you know, it could be we think sometimes of literally Jonas being incomplete or insane because maybe he's half robot, half person or something. But it's more than that. It's it's also that he's been living here in Earth and and going with Earth's rules rather than having that wider context of the larger universe. And potentially that he's been living here on Earth as an alien when he was actually born on Earth, depending on that who works is too. doing yeah. the, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what's kind of cool about Jonas is is being a mix of things. He's- What does he mean by like making, who's, who's he going to make whole in this? Yeah. yeah, maybe maybe both of them, maybe two different people, right? right? Maybe that's why, maybe that's why Miles doesn't remember it. Maybe Miles is the whole person who was killed in the yeah. ground and yeah. and i don't he, I, I i yeah i have a problem with i just don't i i think that's there but i just don't I, yeah we'll have to wait to, i'm, gl I'm yeah. glad that miles is a long way away yeah but i still think that something like that in general is definitely what's going on with miles and i just love the white knight connection because it's so perfect mm -hmm. um it's so perfect for what that is in fact one other cool thing about wittgenstein is he says that all the real philosophical problems in the world really aren't problems they're just people taking the chess piece off the board and being like ah oh, but what is the essence of the problem <laughs> and he's like well if you really want to know put it back on the chessboard then you'll mm -hmm. understand um and he's like but real any sort of real philosophical problem is people taking a chess piece off the board and trying to figure out ah oh, but no what is the pawn truly by itself mm. it's not it only is what it is in its proper context you know incidentally this chapter is where alice reads the jabberwocky poem and her review of that poem always reminds me of this book especially but maybe every book in the solar cycle she says it seems very pretty but it's rather hard to understand 
You see, she didn't <laughs> want to. She, you see, she didn't like to confess, ever, even to herself, that she couldn't make out it at all. Yeah. Somehow, it seems to fill my head with ideas, only I don't exactly know what they are. However, somebody killed something. That's clear, at least, at any rate. <laughs> that seems right, too. Yeah. <laughs> very like our position. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the hubbub was that the people in charge had brought food. The little girl comes and says, there's food. Aren't you coming? So Severian does. So through the doors of the antechamber in the corridor, there's a, quote, an attendant in a mitre of starched white gauze watching over a silver cart. It's like a hotel maid uniform, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Pushing a room service cart. But in this case, it's a man like a in the maid yeah. uniform. Yeah, yeah. or yeah. maybe, or yeah, maybe. I mean, I just, that starched white stuff of like a restaurant worker. But right? a mitre, isn't a mitre, a mitre is like uh, something a bishop might wear or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. The ceiling of the corridor doesn't have the drop ceiling. And beyond the attendant, Severian can see the open doorway to the room with the giant green chimes. He's named that room the Well of Green Chimes. But alas, there are a pair of Hastari stationed at the door, like you said, and they are stationed at the other end too, the, the door to the chimes. Their glowing spears crossed in front of the door. All the prisoners are getting little pastries from the silver cart. And Nikarit tells him to get something either for you or for Jonas because they never bring enough. Someone always goes hungry, even though it's bad manners to take too much. And they only come twice a day. So Severian and Jonas missed the delivery last night. The pastry loaves are coated with sugar icing flavored with lemon, mace, and turmeric. A mace is like nutmeg. He grabs a couple over the other prisoners' heads, and Nikarit says that the pastries vary from day to day. She says, quote, that silver biggin holds coffee, and there are cups on the lower tier of the cart. But it's city coffee, not uh, flavored with pepper. Like, everyone likes it. That's a real thing, actually. Uh, consequently, almost no one here will drink that coffee, and a lot of people don't even know it's there. And, uh, oh, a biggin is any pot with a built-in strainer so the coffee can infuse without the grounds mixing with the infusion. Yeah, it's a it's a big coffee container like you see at conferences and hotels. Right, and, exactly, yeah. yeah. Now, all the pastries are gone, and it's just Severian and Nicorette, and Severian gets a cup and he fills it with coffee. It's, quote, very strong and hot and black and thickly sweetened with what seemed like thyme and honey. Severian feels the same way about it as the rest of them because, you know, he's taking it to Jonas. He knows this is the way he likes it, though. And this is not usual to take a cup away from the cart. But then again, it's not usual for people to drink the coffee at all. And Nicorette signals to the guards that their job is uh, done with a jerk of her head. So... We have to mention that, yeah, the cart of pastries here is yet another thing that's just sort of like this is a, a snack tray, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's yeah. The tradition of a snack tray. If you have someone in, in your waiting room, then you're yep. maybe you're going to bring them a little yeah. uh, uh, continental breakfast or something like yeah. that. Or something. Yeah. And it's, again, one of those just forgotten traditions that they keep doing, even with no memory of why they would do it. It's just how you serve these prisoners that's been done forever. But nobody has also stopped to think about why or if it's mm -hmm. good or bad or efficient or 
even enough or something. It's just, they just keep doing it and everyone says, okay. There's no discussion uh, here as far as for world building, why everyone's teeth aren't rotted out. Um, <laughs> so so I, I think Wolf just liked the joke. He's gonna, oh, yeah. <laughs> just oh, going to yeah. go farther than yeah. that. And then we get a story from uh, Nicorette that is about how this prison came to be. Uh, when Severian asks, she says, you know yourself, I hear it in your voice. Uh, he could know it from Thecla, but he denies it. It depends on whether we believe what he says to her. But he says, no, it's only that I think Jonas does. And she says, uh, well, perhaps he does. I think this is probably because the history of the room is not a state secret. It's probably the least interesting thing about this chapter for rereads, but it's really interesting the first time. Yeah, especially since as we're learning about House Absolute, everything about it has always been presented as very mysterious and strange. And we get, oh, it's an office with a pastry and coffee cart. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And from this confirmation, we do learn that at least this part of House Absolute probably extends from, you know, before Autark Emar, and that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. It wasn't supposed to be a prison going back before Emar, the ruler. She calls him the Autark, but I don't know if Wolf had at this time intended that Emar be the first Autark. Mm -hmm. So she says, long ago, I believe before the reign of Emar, it was the custom for the Autark himself to judge anyone accused of a crime committed within the precincts of the House Absolute. Perhaps the Autarchs felt that by hearing such cases, they would be made aware of plots against them. Or perhaps it was that they hoped that by dealing justly with those in their immediate circle, they might shame hatred and disarm jealousy. Important cases were dealt with quickly, but the offenders in less serious ones were sent here to wait. So this was the Autarchs waiting room, mm -hmm. but like all government bureaucracies, it's about the process and the people performing the process, not the people. If the Autark didn't want to rule on a case, if it was difficult, then they just leave them in the waiting room. And eventually it became where you'd send someone because you would never rule on their case. If Lomer were going to be executed, he'd probably have been sent to the Madachin. He was sent here for an indeterminate detention, a life sentence. And now the doors open and who should be pushed inside? A little ragged gap-tooth man. <laughs> he falls face down on the floor, gets up, and throws himself at Severian's feet. Hello, Hathor. Yay! <laughs> the prisoners swarmed around him and picked him up and asked him questions, and Nickery and then Lomer give him the same treatment they gave Severian last night. He's clutching his cap in his hand, and when they ask his name, he says, I am the slave of my master, far-traveled, map-worn heather am I, dust-choked and doubly deserted. So doubly deserted probably refers to Severian and also to his precious partner, Buzek. The whole <laughs> time he talks, he looks at Severian with, quote, with bright, deranged eyes. Uh, just eyes, just like uh, Chatelaine Layla's hairless rats. This is apparently a... One of Thecla's memories. Rats that ran in circles and bit their own tails when you clap their, your hands. St. Lelia, the lives of Irish saints, says, quote, Her era and her locality have not been distinctly revealed to us, but there's good reason for supposing that she lived in a remote period. <laughs> so also they assume that she was a devoted person because, heck, she's a saint. And here we are celebrating her feast day at Limerick. 
As always, Varian is, quote, so disgusted by the sight <laughs> of them. Uh, and uh, he's worried about Jonas, so he leaves Hathor to be questioned. Severian says, The image of a shaking, gray-fleshed rat was still vivid as I sat down. Then, as though it had itself recalled that it was no more than an image purloined from the dead recollections of Thecla, it flicked out of existence like Domnina's fish. <sighs> Is Hathor something summoned from a mirror? A being from another universe? Mm, I mean, no, I think, uh, I think this is really just sort of him trying to focus on too many things <laughs> at once. It's, at least I feel like, and he's like, there's, there's just too much weirdness going on and I just can't deal with Heather right now. So he's just like, I'm just going to ignore the thing that I don't like and try to focus on okay. something else. Yeah. Unless there's some other significance there. Cause it is, it's, it's a, it's just a cool, but weird, strange way of, well, yeah. Hathor summons the image of the rat. Mm -hmm. Then it winks out like the image of Domnina's fish. I mean, I don't know. I know. That's it's the a, way I am, but it's a I very it. specific kind of way to say I tried to focus on something else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Severian goes back to Jonas and he's starting to feel a little better. We try to summarize these chapters without really you know, reading them, but I don't know what to leave out here. Uh, he asks Severian uh, something wrong, and Severian says, I'm troubled by thoughts. And Jonas's humor is back, and he says, a bad thing for a torturer, but I'm glad of the company. <laughs> yeah, because he has just been told, right, that this is a, a prison that where people just wait forever. And then right, here comes right. Heather, the thing who's there, and Jonas <laughs> is sick, and he's probably realized I'm going to be living off of pastries and coffee for a long bad <laughs> coffee at that. Yeah, there, he's a lot to do. Right. Yeah, and Jonas is himself troubled by thoughts. And he gives uh, Jonas the pastries and the coffee cup. And he says, city coffee, no pepper in it. Is that the way you like it? Yep. That's just the way Jonas, the half robot, likes it. So <laughs> uh, Severian lies and says he already drank his coffee in the corridor. And I'm pretty sure that's a lie. Jonas does bite into the pastries and he's you know much more animated. And then he says... I have to talk to somebody. So it has to be you, even though you'll think I'm a monster when I'm done. You're a monster too. Do you know that, friend Severian? A monster because you take for your profession what most people only do as a hobby. <laughs> wow. But, but it's also a kind of thing where he's he's been helping him this whole time. So it's not like, you mm -hmm. know, it's not like he is suddenly aware, but I think it's sort of the first time where Jonas is getting his perspective back and he's like, you know, what you do is really messed up, man. <laughs> he's like, how, and we've been taking this all just in stride, but we really shouldn't be. <laughs> and so he's kind of, at least that's how I take that. Yeah. But he's is, been operating as Severian's assistant. Oh, I know. Time, I know. It continues to add to a, a bit of a mystery about Jonas. If you want to look for mysteries yeah. about Jonas. Um, Severian says that he knows all about Jonas, though. He knows that he's patched with metal. He's known that for some time, which I think is about an hour or so. He tells him to eat because it'll be another eight watches or so, 10 hours, before they feed them again. And then he starts explaining in his way. Yeah. He says, we crashed. It had been so long on Earth that there was no port when we returned. No dock. Afterward, my hand was gone and my face. My shipmates repaired me as well as they could, but 
There are no parts anymore, only biological material. Um, was everyone on Jonas's ship a robot as well? So that's what I feel like this suggests, or, I mean, it doesn't necessarily, actually, yeah, I, I suppose it doesn't necessarily mean that, but that if, if he was a robot, like, just like Sidero, we find out is, he is completely artificial. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they still need those spare parts and they don't carry them all aboard the ship or they're destroyed in the ship, then the only thing they can do to fix them is use biological parts. Um, but yeah, does that necessarily mean that other people on the ship were all robots or not? I I don't know. Um, I guess it's nothing necessarily. That's the trouble with this book. Nothing necessarily means yeah, anything. <laughs> yep. Yep. So I mean, but but I think it's just more. You know, you I assume that if if the ship crashes, then most everything. It, it's who knows. I mean, it's like yeah, we couldn't repair him with other mechanical parts, so it was easier to graft biological things onto him. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> it's like, what, what kind of crazy weird technology is that seems like yeah. that would be harder but yeah yeah you just unless you were designed to receive biological yeah. parts perhaps yeah or to merge with biology so anyway uh jonas gestures by picking up his flesh hand with his steel hand as a man might lift a bit of filth to cast it away right but again that's sort of the whole point here of i'm sure even if you of course have picked up that he has a uh, metal parts of course, you would think it's the other way around. That right. He was yeah. biological for, or that he was, yeah, he's getting, he's Luke Skywalker getting a fake hand. Right. Right. Afterwards. Exactly. But, but obviously that totally switches. And Severian tries to calm him down. You're feverish. The whip hurts you, but you'll recover and we'll get out and find Jolenta. And Jonas the, nodded. And yeah. one other thing, though, that he does just say is the way that he describes that there. He says he picked up the hand of muscle and bone as a man might lift a bit of filth to cast it away. And so it's not just that he's like, there were only biological parts. He's like the way that he does it is all of a sudden like the sort of like Ooh, and biological parts. Yeah. <laughs> and like, but honestly that could be him for a moment. Part of his disgust or part of his craziness right here could be like, Oh yeah, I am, you know, it's sort of like if you'd just been going about your life forever and then you realize, Oh, I've got a pig's arm grafted to me. And then right. you're like, ah, oh, this is just, this is not me. This is some other. Yes stuff yeah. yeah which is part of his panic yeah it's part it's disassociative right yep absolutely Zerian tries to calm him down you're feverish the whip hurts you but you'll recover and we'll get out and find Jolenta Jonas nodded do you remember how when we neared the end of Piteous Gate in all that confusion she turned her head so that the sun shone on one cheek I have never loved before never in all the time since our crew scattered, Severian, you must talk to me. I cannot bear the confusion of my own thoughts. So, yeah, we could talk forever about why Jonas was immediately smitten by Jolenta, not just with desire like most men, but romantically smitten without ever even trying. But what's cool here is this love he has mm-hmm. is also part of what confuses him, right? Yes. Like the way yes. that's phrased, he's like, he has this moment where I was so overwhelmed with how beautiful she was. Jesus Christ, Severian, I'm, <laughs> I'm everything that I'm doing is insane, he, right? He's, he's like, I, yes. my biological parts disgust me, but I'm in love with a woman who is yeah, and they're artificial and biological. And, uh, and it's just, I? I, yeah, exactly. What am I, what, what? 
sort of what am I doing? What, what you know, all of this stuff is, I mean, he's kind of fragmenting, right? right? You said disassociating. And I think that's absolutely right. That whoever or whatever he is, is just completely coming apart. Yeah. But he's also, but the odd thing is that it's coming apart because he's starting to remember more about the different contexts. And so, right. so maybe, yeah, maybe somehow he had come up with some sort of integrated personality between the ways that he had thought of himself before and then it is literally what he's what he said was that I'm going sane and remembering what I really am. And that's that's driving me mad. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that's probably one of the probably the best sort of concrete explanation we're going to get. I think there might be some other suggestions that I'm going to talk about when we get to the, the mirrors chapter. But but I think the basic thing. The place I've come down to is because I know last time I was like, oh, he just he freaks me out so much. But I think that <laughs> the, the thing you have to think about Jonas is that the more he realizes who and what he is, the the more everything about him seems partial and incomplete and contradictory. And um, and that's really the source of what's right. driving him insane. And probably also realizing not that that about himself, but I think also remembering about the world and the time that he's in and probably that he had when he was on the ship, some different larger perspective of things. And he's either forgotten about it as he wandered around or forced himself to forget, but seeing the people in the antechamber living this horrible half existence reminds him that everything in this world where he's been stuck forever is a weird half existence. And right. he's like, I've got to get back to the place where, where I'm really from. Right. Yeah. So Severian just talks about whatever comes into his head and Jonas doesn't talk. And then he thinks, I know I'll read to him. So he opens up the Brown book at random and reads. And the next bit is the tale of the student and his son. Yeah. And the last thing I want to say about that is that there is something of a religious perspective, I think to what Jonas is going through. Um, and I think there's, it's not specific here. I think that there's some things in the mirrors chapter. I mean, religious, spiritual, I don't know what you want to call it. I don't think it's it's tied to one particular sort of faith, but I think the idea that Jonas is having is you could imagine it thinking of it this way, like when you really wake up and feel how far you are from God or from meaning, or if you really are suffering some kind of true existential crisis, you feel like you are living like the people in the antechamber where everything you've been doing with your life is sort of half true or, mm -hmm. or, or just filling in and doing habits and traditions without really knowing what they are. But I mean, he's having a sort of really true existential crisis in all kinds of ways. All at is once. Jonas like that? Is Jonas I, I a someone who has, who it, like the people in the antechamber, like the people who have forgotten their freedom, he has himself forgotten what he could be, what he I, was. That's what I think so. Cause he's there's, if nothing else, there's going to be a line in the mirrors chapter where he mentions how, and it's, it's, I think the first time we get the word high rose, but he says, I've spent all these years searching for the high rose and tinkering with, with crude technology. And I think there's something that, that is almost like him saying, in one way or another, I know there was this more beautiful, more purposeful world of Yesed or of uh, some higher level or of, you know, wherever it is that the ships 
know about or wherever the ships come from. He was part of that world and he's been living in this world so long. Maybe it's the past for him. Maybe it's a kind of lower dimension like Bryce to Yesed or something like that. But there is some sense with Jonas, I think, that for him saying, I'll come back when I'm sane and whole, is him saying, I need to go to what to me is a more real world. That's where I'm from. And I've had to be living in a sort of false world of illusions and maybe call it even fallenness for a long time. But there is something about Jonas that I think his robot ship faring self is from, uh, again, it's not clear at this point in the story, but is either from Yesud or is from that higher level or is at least from a kind of future where there are more answers and perspectives on Mm -hmm. where humanity fits into things. And he's been having to live out his life in forgetfulness for a long time. And it's, it just feels empty to him. Or half memory or, or you think you remember, but you, you, you no longer associate the real meaning of anything. And I actually do get the sense that there is something about Jonas. That's kind of like, um, being like, I don't know if you ever saw the, the, um, oh shoot. What's, what's the Vim Vendors movie about the angel who decides to become human because he falls in love with the woman. Uh, uh, Wings of Desire. Was that it? Was it Wings yeah. of Desire? Yeah. Okay. There's something about Jonas that's kind of like uh, an involuntarily fallen angel. Who's <laughs> like, I know I was something <laughs> more and I'm not now. And I have to get back to that place that yeah. I was. You know, um, even even in, for a less religious perspective, it's like someone who's maybe suffered a terrible brain injury and they used to do they used to be able to do so many more things. And at that moment, having the clarity, like maybe they have a good day where they could remember what they used to be like. I mean, I'm I personally am terrified of like Alzheimer's disease because people talk about how you can have a good day. But sometimes the the good days of someone suffering from Alzheimer's are the worst because they remember what they're not really yeah. anymore. Right. You know, I, yeah. and so Jonas is. I feel like that's what Jonas is. That's why why I think he's there's there is a little bit of a kind of religious allegory too there. Where if mm-hmm. you if you really feel like there is some kind of more fulfilled way to be or live, and then you realize that most of the time you're not there, that can just be utterly tragic. Yeah, and I feel like that's what Jonas is living out, and I don't know. It's super powerful to me, but, right? Um, but yeah, but we'll, we'll. There's more about that, and <laughs> we'll see if we can trace it back into a bit more specific stuff about the story. But that is where, at this point, at least, I've kind of come to fit Jonas together in in how I see this. And Zafarian doesn't understand that, right? Like, <laughs> I, I he doesn't get all this stuff yet. Um, he knows enough to write the things down that Jonas <laughs> says. And maybe maybe the Severian who's writing the story, who's finished and knows he's going on the trip, maybe now he understands something more about that. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure. And right. the way he reacts to Miles makes me think that maybe he kind of got some of that and that his, even, even if Miles has nothing to do with Jonas, the fact that Severian feels like he sees something in Jonas to me makes me think that over time, maybe he understood a little bit of what Jonas was saying and kind of hoped miles was maybe a way to start to talk to that him together, yeah. but maybe not. 
And yeah. I don't know, but Miles is very confusing. And yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. We have we have time to worry about Miles. Thank goodness. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I don't know. I wonder if I wonder if you listeners have anything to say about yeah. Jonas's backstory based on this story, or why he says what he says, what the meaning is, the deeper meaning or the overall meaning, uh, the higher meaning of what he has to say uh, or the other aspects of this room. Uh, we certainly hope that you'll reach out to us with your ideas and other comments, your thoughts, your corrections and complaints, and that you'll bring them to us on the Facebook group, the Reddit, sub Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, email, or the Patreon site. And you can find out how to do all that on the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Reddit, but do tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. We will see you soon. Stuck inside these four walls Sent inside forever Never seeing no And Alice through the looking, looking through the looking. But I do, but I think that this says maybe I should cut that. Out. Let me try this another again before okay. that again. Okay, Jonas is going to go through Father Aniris Miris. <laughs>
I'll like cut this out. What, what, what does he have in the morning at the uh, at the hotel? Uh, continental breakfast. Yeah, yeah. Or, it's a, it's no. like a little uh, continental brunch or something like that. Or something 